We start today, however, with Gary Little, co-founder of Canvas Ventures, and Gary has been in this industry for a long, long time. Welcome, Gary. I, I see that you're doing something new, so we'll uh, have a chance to catch up. Uh, Sarana, thank you for inviting me to join your, your panel today. Well, um, Gary, I think what would be great for our audience is to hear about a bit of your backstory before Canvas Ventures, and then, then we'll uh, double-click down into Canvas Ventures, your positioning, what, what are you trying to do differently. But you have been in this business for a long time, so what have you done, what have you seen, and how has the industry changed in the you know, long time that you've been playing in these uh, pools? Yes, uh, thank you. So I have been in the industry, I've had the opportunity to be in the industry for uh, really 30 years um, now. So I've had a chance to see a lot of ups and downs and more ups and more downs, and that's part of the, uh, the drama and the fun of the venture industry, it is cyclical. I, uh, I started as an electrical engineer. Um, I also was in sales and marketing at IBM, then went back to business school. And that's where I first heard about venture capital. Never heard of one before. Uh, it was a, a summer job when I was working at, at, at IBM. I met a venture capitalist. I said, oh, this is great. It's kind of a combination of engineering and business. And, uh, uh, you know, how many of you are there? And I went out and started just researching and uh, ended up joining the Rockefeller Families Fund called Benrock uh, straight out of business school. I did that for um, about two and a half years based in New York City. And uh, what, I, what I realized at that time was uh, just having a, a few years of work experience uh, at, at IBM and an MBA really did not prepare me to be a venture capitalist. Uh, and um, at that time, entrepreneurs were probably in the early 40s, late 40s, when they were starting businesses. And I didn't have much to offer to them. So I, uh, and I had the itch to go, you know, be on the operating side. So the next 10 years, I spent at Sun Microsystems, which was at that time still a, a young company, uh, and, and Apple, um, and a uh, variety of positions, um, sales and marketing, um, hosted in Hong Kong, opening up offices overseas, and then uh, later uh, internationally across, across the globe, um, and, uh, and then in, ending up running product marketing uh, for the Solaris operating system at Sun. And then I went to Apple. Uh, and had a variety of roles there, including international marketing, uh, uh, head of North American uh, sales to, uh, for, the, for channel sales, and uh, ultimately running the um, uh, general manager and SVP uh, for the company, running their Power Macintosh division and the displays business. And it was at that point that I said, hey, you know, this would be a good time to go see if I can take the skills I've learned and go find a, a startup. To, uh, to run. I, I didn't have ideas to found one, but I wanted to go meet up with some tech entrepreneurs and see if I could help them build and scale a company. And that was 20 years ago. And that's when I ended up uh, meeting a bunch of venture guys again. And uh, I got pulled over to the venture side instead of running a company. And uh, I've been really enjoying Oh, and the difference was after 10 years working at Sun and Apple, I really felt like uh, I did have something to offer to the entrepreneurs in terms of connections, network, uh, ideas, uh, um, guidance, and I found I really enjoyed what I was uh, doing and could add value there. 
And that was Morgan Taylor, right? Yeah, so I joined Morgan Taylor um, uh, uh, 20 years ago. Um, and, and Morgan Taylor was one of the earliest venture firms. Um, in fact, this year it's celebrating its 50th year in, in business. So I'm still Morgan Taylor partner in, uh, in its older funds. Um, but uh, Morgan Taylor over 50 years uh, did not only IT, uh, which I'm a part of, but life science and buyouts, mm -hmm. had multiple offices, and uh, it was a larger entity. Uh, we raised an $850 million fund 18 months after a $600 million fund. And uh, so it was, you know, it was a large enterprise, and what we decided to do was really uh, have the information technology team uh, members of, of that, that team formed Canvas Ventures. Um, mm -hmm. Members of the life science team created Lightstone, and members of the private equity team created Morgan Taylor Private Equity. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and so that our our inaugural fund at Canvas was in October of 2013. So we're about mm -hmm. four and a half years old. It was a $175 million fund. Uh, we were successful in raising. Uh, our second fund of $300 million, so we're just under uh, half a billion dollars under management and mm -hmm. um, having a lot of fun. We really uh, focus in on uh, on Series A and Series B investments. I'd say traditional early stage venture capital. Our investments range from, I'd say, five million to initial investments, five to ten million. Probably the average has been about seven million dollars. Um, and uh, total investment ranges from about 10 to 20 million dollars over <clears throat> over the life of uh, life of a company. Uh, we focus almost exclusively on software, um, and the business is made out of software, and that's everything from you know mobile and internet-based and SaaS-based companies and marketplaces. Uh, uh, what we uh, B2B, B2C, both. Um, both. Um, I, I focus more on the B2B, uh, and so I, we call it the, the new enterprise, as, as enterprise trying to reshape themselves. I look for mm -hmm. opportunities there. Uh, I have a partner, Rebecca Lynn, who is strong in FinTech and healthcare IT, uh, and then a partner, Paul Shao, who's strong on, um, on marketplaces. Um, he okay. led an investment house, which you probably heard of, which combines uh, kind of SaaS for uh, designers with a marketplace to, to buy uh, furnishings on the back end that's done very well, and he's um, been involved with helping us build our marketplace uh, background. Uh, Rebecca okay. was involved with Lending Club and, uh, and a couple other FinTech companies that have done uh, really well. Uh, probably the best-known companies that I've been involved with, uh, that I'm still involved with, are uh, MuleSoft and uh, Evernote. So a um, couple of questions out of what you said. Um, you know, a traditional Series A today is kind of Series B in terms of what people are looking for metrics-wise. So um, entrepreneurs are being very capital efficient, um, and, and they don't – in Series A, often they're not looking for five to ten million dollars, whereas uh, they're looking more like a maybe a five million dollar round. So a couple of partners putting in two point five each kind of scenarios. How do you parse the change in 
um, the dynamics of venture capital, what you need to have to raise a Series A, what is the definition of a Series A, and so forth? Yeah, very good question because um, the definitions are changing. As you said, uh, a, um, uh, a Series A used to be what's now a seed, um, so it exactly. has, has changed. Um, I, I, th the way we see it is there's many, many firms um, making money available um, on an angel and seed basis, basis, a lot of $50 million funds um, mm -hmm. that maybe uh, club together um, and often in notes that uh, provide founders the opportunity to uh, build something and bring it to market and see if it, um, you know, if it has traction. Um, where we typically get involved, regardless of whether it's called uh, Series A or Pre-Seed, whatever it is, but I'd say on the, on the B2B side, it would be when companies are uh, kind of approaching that $1 million in average uh, recurring revenue stage. At that stage, it's still very early. Most of the sales have been done by the founders. Um, they may or may not have uh, salespeople in the company. If they do, they're uh, probably one or two. They typically do not have a head of marketing or a head of sales. Um, um, the uh, engineering is uh, done by the founders. So it's really uh, the, a technical team that has gone out and um, on their own sold to some initial customers. Um, if we, and we said, gee, if, if, if engineers can figure out how to sell um, uh, and, and get a million in ARR, there's probably something there. And um, if we get involved, at that stage, the company uh, does deserve usually $5 million or so of investment. And we would put that in all of ourselves um, uh, with, uh, along with the early investors. Um, um, sometimes bring in uh, a small follower, but uh, rather than spraying our investments around uh, among a lot of investments, we, con we consider ourselves conviction investors. So we make fewer investments, but if we like them, we try to, um, you know, get a good stake in the company. And we may be involved with that company for 10 years or more. So uh, we try to choose wisely um, and then, uh, you know, really uh, commit to, to helping that company uh, grow. What we do... So your, your take on the, uh, on the Series A is that you would just take the whole round of a $5 million round and not try to split yeah. the round. Makes sense. That's right. That makes sense. And I, and I think uh, for, for I'd say, the traditional venture firms uh, at that Series A, uh, uh, they, uh, you know, you can only be on, if you're taking a board, you can only, you know, effectively manage, you know, seven to ten boards and more, mm -hmm. more realistically six to eight. So if you're doing, you're only making one to two of these investments per year, um, and if it takes five to seven years to, uh, exit a company, you're on those six to eight boards. Uh, so you have yeah. to choose very wisely, and if you are choosing that wisely, you want to make sure you have a sufficient stake in the company. So it's not a drive-by investor where, uh, I don't know if I'll put five in, but, you know, I'd put two in if somebody else put two, two in. That's, that's not ours. We, uh, we, would, we would like to make a, uh, you know, what I call a conviction stake because we believe in what the company's doing and commit to making to helping that company be successful. Uh, but you know, the, just to point out, 
you were asking about where we play. So if the, if the angel and seed guys get it to a million, uh, you, the entrepreneur is really picking their board member uh, in that Series A, or when we would get involved, we would want a, a board seat. So you're looking for a relationship that's going to be long-term. Yeah. And if we're successful over in the next round or the round after that, the company would be at $10 million in ARR, and that's where the growth stage funds um, would kick in. So our, our, yeah. we see our role as bridging companies from that angel seed stage to the growth stage. And once we have a stake, we're on really common terms, um, similar terms as the founder. They have ownership, we have ownership, and we want to make the right decisions to hang on to that ownership uh, while building a investing to build a successful company. We're, our mission is not to put a lot of money to work. It's to uh, make something of the equity that we have and that the founders and the management team have. What about geography? Where do you like yeah, to invest? So, yeah, since we're a small firm, we just have three partners now. We'll, uh, our target is to probably never have more than four or five partners. Um, and, um, and since we're early, our main task when we get that uh, technical team is to help them uh, recruit their head of sales, head of marketing, uh, at some point probably a head of product, a head of engineering, as a lot of times the technical founder ends up uh, moving towards an architecture or CTO role, not always, um, but, um, and, and, and then the VP of finance or CFO. Um, I can tell you the last investment I made, um, it's been less than a year, we've actually uh, recruited a CEO, CRO, CMO, CFO, uh, VP of uh, product marketing, and, um, uh, you know, we've had multiple discussions with every sales rep in the, in the company, and that's the job of the first year is building out the management team so it can scale to that $10 million and beyond. Oh, and so to do that, I was going to say, to yeah. answer your question, to do all that hiring, it really doesn't make sense for us to be making investments overseas. Uh, in fact, it's that much harder to do it out of the Bay Area. So our primary focus is uh, here in Silicon Valley where we can use our network and not just meet with the finalists on the candidates, but sometimes take, you know, first meetings uh, with, with, uh, mm -hmm. with candidates and meet a lot of people to try to get the best team. Uh, and you can't do that if you're just flying in and flying out. Having said that, there are some trusted, like, chairman, uh, uh, people that we trust that will spend a day a week with the company uh, doing some of that heavy lifting. And we have uh, that network in New York, and so we've made uh, several investments in New York City. But uh, to date, we've been primarily Bay Area with, uh, with a few investments in New York City. Okay. So you have a question from the audience, which uh, probably is a reasonable question to elaborate. Minu Saburi is asking, please define conviction investor versus traditional investor. <laughs> well, conviction investor, I, I think um, I, 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 I think that's a that's a term that we've coined internally, just the way we um, think. So, what does that mean? Uh, uh, first of all, since we are a um, you know we're, we're a sizable venture firm with a three hundred million dollar fund and, and nearly a half billion under management. But we're also not a, you know, a billion-dollar fund trying to put money to work. 
uh, in all sectors. So like any um, company that we would advise, focus is really important. So for us to be successful, we try to pick some sectors and focus on those and get knowledgeable about those sectors and hopefully know more about those sectors and have a better network in those sectors than the generalist. Um, and so we call that um, thesis uh, investors. Um, in terms of where we, you know, the areas that we've made our most largest number of investments been in, they have been in um, what we call the new enterprise, that's the B2B, uh, FinTech, um, digital health, which we're um, lightening up on right now, um, and then um, marketplaces, which we have a heavy focus on. Um, I'd say current, current trend across all of those has been the use of AI um, to uh, yeah. enable opportunities there. Uh, so in those areas, we spend a lot of time, we look at a lot of companies, we try to find the company we think that has the best opportunity, which is usually the core team with a value proposition that we can build around, um, that can build a lasting, enduring company and say, okay, um, for that one, we're going to make an outsized investment in that company. And what we mean by conviction is we're not hedging our bets by playing with three different companies and a little here, a little there. We try to pick the winner and put all, all our chips on that number, <laughs> so to speak. And so that's so our what prediction. are some of the highlights of your portfolio that are worth uh, discussing in, you know, as case cases and points of your investment thesis? Yeah. So maybe I, the best when people say, "Hey, what are you looking at? What's interesting?" Uh, the easiest thing is to say what we just did. Um, so I can tell you what um, uh, my last um, two investments and more the reason why. Uh, so um, uh, one, of the, one of the investments uh, was a company called Kinetica, uh, K-I-N-E-T-I-C-A, Kinetica. Um, and uh, Kinetica is uh, basically it's a, a, a relational database um, that can that can basically um, do SQL queries natively on, mm -hmm. um, on streamed data that's coming in at high velocity, billions of rows per minute. It can do SQL calls. If you, have, if you can do SQL, you can then do things like have Tableau run natively on this database, as an example. Now, why do we make this investment? Um, the, the, we were looking for opportunities where all this data uh, that the that that the world is generating, and the world is generating. Uh, I think I think half of the world's data has been generated in the last two years. So, and that's just increasing at a high rate. And we know from Facebook and Google, those companies that have the most data and can make the use of the best data win. And data is coming in from IoT uh, devices, sensors, um, other computers, from the internet, um, and uh, companies are just a wash of data, but they have a really hard time processing it. So we were mm -hmm. looking for both what new opportunities are enabled by data, and certainly AI is a machine learning is a good example uh, of a technology, uh, you know, um, trying to do that. And so we have investments around that thesis, but also around what breaks. And certainly relational databases, think Oracle and uh, uh, Microsoft, you, you name it, they break 
when you try to flood a lot of data in and try to query it uh, at high speeds. So what Connecticut did um, is they wrote from scratch a relational database that works on GPU chips. These are the chips that work in, you know, run in gaming machines that instead of having like a duo core like from Intel, two or four processors, um, these chips have 2,500 to 4,000 processors per chip and Connecticut mm -hmm. had customers that were running on 500 chips running in parallel um, and, uh, you know, 700,000 processing elements running simultaneously on billions of rows as data that it's ingesting. And we thought that was a big idea. They were landing just with founders selling the products at million dollar per year um, uh, um, uh, annual contracts. And uh, so we said, this is very interesting. Those GPUs are going to take advantage of Moore's law to keep up with the flood of data. But um, the Oracle can't rewrite their software to do this. They'll have to start from scratch if they want it. This company has a head start, already has big customers like U.S. Postal Service uh, with a almost an eight-figure um, business. We hopped in and co-led the deal with um, a large investment with Meritech, who is actually one of those late-stage investors. We co-led it mm -hmm. with them, and we're an early-stage investor. So we had conviction, they had conviction, and uh, that's an example of um, one we have high hopes for, and it's that company I mentioned that we did all the executive team recruiting for, and um, it's off to the races. Mm -hmm. So, um, Gary, what uh, do you think of unicorn mania? Are you chasing unicorns? What's, uh, what's your analysis of the value's desire for unicorns? Yeah, uh, well, we've had um, uh, we, we don't chase unicorns. We we actually try to um, you know grow unicorns. You know, um, you, you start with a uh, uh, you know uh, <laughs> just kind of thinking that have the opportunity to to be the initial um, uh, co-lead the deal on MuleSoft. We start with things that look like mules, and we try to grow them so they have you know the unicorn thing sticking at them over time, which which that company had the opportunity to turn a mule into a unicorn. Um, but uh, yeah, so when we uh, in, when we select companies, we try to find companies that have the opportunity to be grow and to be billion-dollar-plus companies. But of course, they're all starting uh, very young. We don't chase companies that are already uh, you know at the multi-hundred-million-dollar valuations um, and. Um, or, or, or but I think the real question in, I think the real question in that is, what kind of TAM is it uh, that is interesting for you? Because uh, you know, given where we are in the history of the startup industry, the technology industry, and so forth, um, there are billion-dollar opportunities which you need to build a unicorn-level company. But there are also many opportunities that are, you know, let's say 200, 300, 500 million dollar TAM, which are, you know, smaller opportunities, probably better suited for acquisition exits. Yeah, okay. Um, I, I understand your question now. So, we, uh, from a portfolio standpoint, uh, if you have a 300 million dollar fund like we do, we'd like 
each individual company to have the opportunity, if successful, if very successful, to return the entire fund. Because at that point, you've given the limited partners back their, back their money and they haven't made any. Um, and then the rest of the portfolio can, uh, you know, try to double or triple that portfolio. And just to be honest with you, it's not an easy task. You need to have that one company in the portfolio that can return the entire fund for the venture economics to work. Not all of them are going to get there, uh, and therefore, uh, you know, some are going to exit at uh, that three to five hundred million. Some are going to exit at hundred, and some are going to be zeros. And um, and you, as a venture fund, you need to return two to three times uh, the investment to the LPs if you want to continue to um, raise money over the next, you know, two decades. Um, and that's the that's the way it works. So. Um, those lower outcomes are fine, and they add to the portfolio. But if you if you if you start out saying, "Oh, this could be a two to three hundred million dollar company," and you do all your company, you will never you you reduce your opportunity of having those what you call the unicorns that really make the uh, portfolio and required are required for a large fund um, to return. Now, having said that, I think this is a really good place where angel money and, and seed money exists because at that stage, there's not enough data about the market opportunities, the product market fit, the team and how they're working together to really know whether you have a $50 million opportunity or a billion-dollar billion dollar plus opportunity. And um, before... And that gives the, actually the entrepreneur some flexibility because before they decide to raise venture, and what I mean is that $5 million round, um, they should know that that venture capitalist is looking for that billion-plus company opportunity. And um, instead of pitching, uh, unless the entrepreneur really feels that it has that opportunity and is willing to uh, go, for, go along for a five- to ten-year ride, behind that opportunity. Maybe they should just keep raising uh, seed and angel money and keep the burn low so that they have the flexibility to exit at a $50 million or $100 million exit uh, with a lot of ownership, have a good outcome for themselves individually, and then move on to the next opportunity that could be that billion-dollar opportunity. I think some entrepreneurs can get trapped by raising money uh, and telling a big story when they don't necessarily have conviction themselves and um, when they could be spending their time on better opportunities. So, so I, I will make a few comments uh, for the audience to understand what you're saying and put it in perspective uh, just because that we have all kinds of entrepreneurs here and, you know, people working on a Smaller TAM opportunity have plenty of conviction. If you're the you know market leader in a space that is a niche that where you are the leader of in a 200 million dollar TAM opportunity, you can have plenty of conviction, build a beautiful piece of software that solves the problem, and build a great business. The the issue is you need to do it more capital efficiently and not raise huge amounts of money, and hence. You should, if you want to raise money, you need to work with funds that are smaller funds. And the truth is, right now, the venture market is flooded with micro VCs. There are 
about 700 micro VCs, and I constantly talk to investors who have raised $15 million funds, $30 million funds, $50 million funds, $75 million funds, and that's more your sweet spot. If you're trying to do a capital efficient venture where you're going to sell this company to a larger player, you know, after building it up to a point for, you know, $50 million or $100 million, that's a different strategy. The funding strategy is a different strategy, and you're not going to done in that case. You're not. You should not be raising money from a three hundred million dollar fund like Canvas. That's the equation that you need to understand. And then I, what I see a lot in the industry, um, you know, working with entrepreneurs, is that entrepreneurs do spray and pray. And they kind of go hit up, like if you have this as your investment thesis, don't go hit up Andreessen Horowitz because they, that's not what they do. So, but there are, there is a body of VCs who would be working with you, who would be willing to work with you, but you have to go to the right, uh, audience and not to, not just chase the big names or the bigger funds. This is a very, you know, poorly understood area of, uh, fundraising in the, and, and it's understandable, it's quite complex, all this stuff is complex, and the entrepreneurs, especially those who are doing it for the first time, it's, it's a lot of complex perspectives. So that's why I just wanted to elaborate a little bit on what you said, Gary. Yes, Ramon, I, I think you said it uh, extremely well. Um, of course, there's some opportunities where the TAM is zero, so what we're, because you're inventing a new um, market, okay. and those, yeah. those can be the best, um, absolutely the best businesses uh, if you can basically invent it, have a high share of a small market, and then have that market grow into be an enormous market. Uh, and, um, yeah. but, um, yeah, yeah, you I know, think, there, um, there are a few of those. Uh, you have another question from the audience. Uh, let me read that out. Do you have thoughts on how to close the gap existing between male-led ventures and versus female-led ventures? Between male-led and female-led? Yes. Um, well, um, that's interesting. Um, I mentioned one of my partners is, uh, is, is a female, one of our three. She's a, a co-founder um, and uh, actually was our best-performing partner in our prior fund, so has earned it. Um, uh, and also two years or three years, I can't remember, on the Midas list and keeps moving up the ranks. Um, so uh, we're, we like women um, entrepreneurs, um, and we actually have um, uh, probably an outsized number of female-led entrepreneurs in our portfolio. Uh, 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 Vita, Zola is, would be examples. Um, uh, and we don't really differentiate between a female and a, and a male. I would say one of the just from a math standpoint, um, there's many, many fewer female entrepreneurs that come in and uh, raise, that are raising money from us. So, um, uh, and I think that could be because most of the um, businesses that we see are, are basically a, a core tech team, and there's fewer females that are graduating from uh, uh, getting their bachelor's, master's, and PhDs in, say, computer science. Um, and so the, the number one thing that could improve that would be more people, more females choosing, uh, let's say, computer science, but engineering in general, 
as their majors, because uh, uh, that is where the huge correlation is. Is uh, the highest correlation between our founders is their technical undergrad. Yeah, I fully agree with this comment, and which is why I, I actually don't pound uh, on this topic of why are there so few venture female founders, technology founders getting venture funded because they're not founding a lot of technology companies. And why is that? Because they don't, there are not enough women with computer science backgrounds or, you know, electrical engineering backgrounds. And that's a, that's a, that's a reality. The universities are trying to address that reality, but it is still a reality. And until that equation tips, it's no point pounding on the venture capitalists and, and we'll never reach equality because venture capitalists are tasked, tasked with making money. Um, I think the, the bigger question, which you have answered, I think for the industry, the bigger question is, is there a bias against women entrepreneurs? And um, that question, people have very different perspectives um, on the topic. Uh, and it's a much bigger topic that I don't want to open up right now. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll tell you that with just just to be completely honest, within our firm, uh, when we're talking about a woman-led entrepreneur, there's no discussion. There's no discussion about uh, you know classic. Oh, is this entrepreneur going to leave and go have a baby or something? never have those discussions. The only thing that I would say is we uh, uh, when I meet with younger uh, uh, female uh, like. Stanford's nearby, and uh, they have a program called SheCode, and we try to support mm -hmm. those events. And uh, we have women in tech events here, and we, we try to nurture. We tell them, why wait uh, to start a company? These days, there's a lot of um, uh, a lot of people start companies straight out of um, mm -hmm. school, or even leave graduate programs to start programs. Why not you? Go do it now. You're in your 20s. Um, you have 10 years, uh, you know, running room where you can just focus on doing it. Do it now. So that would be my advice. <laughs> These days, uh, there's enough mentoring networks like yourself and advisors. Um, no founders have all the quivers, uh, all the arrows in the – all the toolkit, uh, tools they need to be a successful entrepreneur. Uh, they go out and they figure it out. And um, the core strength you need is that, you know, product orientation and um, that vision, and you can build around everything else you need around that. So just go do it. Great. Well, Gary, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. And um, I do have a company that will probably fit your thesis. So after we finish the session, I will email you the details. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure um, uh, being on. Uh, with you. Thank you for having me and uh, good luck to all your entrepreneurs that might be listening to this.